everyone. Welcome to Queer Lodgings, the queer-led podcast about everything Tolkien. I'm Alicia, and I'm here with my usual co-host, Grace. Hello. And Leah. Hey, y'all. And today we'd like to introduce you to Taylor Jiggers. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's exciting to be here. Thank you so much for being here. Taylor is a scholar of fantasy literature, theology, gender, and sexuality, and the author of the new volume, Queering Faith and Fantasy Literature, Fantastic Incarnations and the Destruction of Theology, which discusses using fantasy to deconstruct Christianity. Thank you all for joining us today. Let's gather around the fire in Metaseld, ready to pass the mead cup to friends old and new as we ready ourselves for a new journey. Today, we'll be discussing queer fantasy and the difference between books written specifically to be queer, inclusive, and reading queer themes into a traditional text. The latter of those two is what this podcast is all about, and it's somehow a bit of a taboo topic within Tolkien scholarship, where the war is still raging in the year of our Lord 2023 about authorial intent. (laughs) I'd like to start uh, with asking how one comes to do something as controversial yet so brave as to include the words faith and queer in a title. (laughs) Given the current political climate in the U.S. and parts of Europe, aligning faith with any type of queerness seems a bit oxymoronic and maybe even dangerous. How did you come, Taylor, to study both theology and sexuality? (laughs) Well, that, that's such a great question, and it's it's also a huge question to, to start things off with. But basically, the, the the most simple answer is that those are are both things that have impacted my life historically. I'm a, a queer person who has had various different relationships to Christianity throughout my life, but it has remained a constant subject of interest and often subject of strife in, in my own personal life. And so that that's partly where I, I, I come at both of those topics from, you know, especially as somebody who grew up an evangelical Southern Baptist in, in the South, in, in the States, and, you know, then came to an understanding of my own queerness within my mid-twenties and and finding the ways that those different things can collide with each other, can often enter into conflict with each other, can often enter into quite productive and generative conflict with each other, I think, but then also how they can speak to each other, how they can be mutually illuminating. And, And I think my my relationship to studying theology and fantasy also plays a, a big part in that. So I, I did my undergrad degree at a Christian liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. And for my senior thesis project there, I decided to look at theology in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and Alfred Lord Tennyson's Idols of the King, and comparing and contrasting those as as different kind of medievalist theological imaginaries. And, and so I've, I've always been interested in that. It, it's, it's the topic, theology and fantasy is the topic that I, I've kept coming back to in my scholarly work as well. But as, as I sort of started coming to more of a knowledge of my own queerness, my, my own sexuality, you know, and, and my relationship to theology and to Christianity has sort of shifted and evolved and kind of changed shape within various different contexts. 
the, the way that I've explored that in, in fantasy within my scholarly work has, has also shifted quite a bit. And, and I think particularly this project, the, the, this book, which is adapted from my PhD thesis, was born out of a frustration that I felt with a lot of theological scholarship on fantasy literature, particularly on the works of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, and a lot of what I like to call the usual suspects within theological mm-hmm. studies of fantasy. And so I became very interested in finding alternate ways of talking about ways that we can read theology and fantasy that also reflected what I was experiencing and, and also reflected the, the positions that I came to theology from and the, the, the ways in which I, I felt like queerness and faith were, again, speaking to each other, sometimes conflicting, but also in, in very interesting and, and productive ways in my own life. Um, so, so that that is a, a, a bit of a rambly response to that question. But it, it, it is, you know, I, I do have a very personal investment in, in both of those topics. And so that I, I feel like has kind of borne out in the, the academic work that I do. No, that, that that's perfect. Honestly, I ask that question because actually, I don't know if it's come up on this podcast. I am from Georgia, if you couldn't tell from my voice. Uh, <laughs> and I also grew up queer in the South. I didn't grow up evangelical. But what ended up happening to me growing up as a queer person in the South is I just rejected Christianity wholesale and religion, also just a general wholesale. And studying Tolkien as a unapologetic atheist is sometimes very hard because there are so many people who come at it from a um, specifically fundamentalist Catholic kind of approach. And I think it is fascinating that uh, someone is actually doing uh, religious bent research that I think is uh, useful in 2023. People have been talking about Catholicism and Tolkien for, you know, 50 years at this point. Let's uh, move on, do something new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. I have a similar background. I, I grew up evangelical Christian in Texas and very closeted queer. I kind of didn't even come to understand my own queerness until about my mid-20s or so. And I, I've had kind of a, a similar sort of relationship with, with Christianity. I, I kind of went completely 90 degrees and turned to animism and paganism for, for my spirituality. But it's sort of like that question of of faith and sort of i guess thinking about spirituality is something that always i'm always kind of returning to and i'm deeply interested in like the history the early histories of early christianity and you know i i engage with a lot of folks who study christianity and tolkien from a non-christian perspective so like you know speaking with you taylor is like this is like totally like my like swimming pool of like you know of interest and i'm like i think there's a lot of complicated stuff to explore like i'm decidedly not christian but i'm like i i feel like i know more about it than a lot of these folks who are actually producing these these works about tolkien and his catholicism in particular i mean part of that is just having gone to art school right because mm, totally, art yeah. is nothing but the history of Christianity. It's, well, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Like Alicia and I are both art school refugees, I guess, um, and uh, survivors. Um, so it's pretty difficult to to avoid the history of Christianity for sure. I think that's one of the pieces that I am so delighted by in the research that you're doing, Taylor, is that 
Christianity religion has acted on queer people for centuries, millennia, um, longer than we've had the terminology that we currently use today. And mm -hmm. I'm really fascinated by scholarship and research that doesn't just seed the the idea of being able to interrogate any of those themes or histories or anything to the purview of heteronormative society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And and I, I think that's another one of the reasons why I, I'm kind of invested in the, this research, even as my relationship to Christianity and Christian theology can, continues to change and evolve, you know, and, and, and at the moment, I, it's in a place where I'm feeling like it's definitely in flux. But it, it, it's also one of those things where, you know, as, as you said, Grace, because Christianity has often acted upon queer people, whether we desire it to or not, that there, there's a sense in which that it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. And because it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon, what are the ways that we can stay with that and, and inhabit some kind of a subversive space within that? And, and I think fantasy has an opportunity to, to really do some radical things in, in reimagining the structure of that, in reimagining doctrines, in, in subversively working through particularly thorny areas within theology that I'm, I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit more depth with regard to fantasies, just queer potential more broadly later on in this podcast. But yeah, I, that, that, that's something that I feel very strongly about is that, okay, well, this isn't going away anytime soon. So, so what do we do with all of that? You know, how, how do we respond as queer people? Yeah. So last summer, you gave a presentation called Making Visible Notes on Queering Fantasy Canons, which I think gathers together a lot of really fascinating thoughts on what a queer canon would look like, how we might define it. And I think that you you engage a lot with what we have referred to before as reader response theory, which is for our listeners, it's the importance that the reader themselves has in constructing the meaning of a text. This is pretty much what this podcast is all about, obviously. Um, we're pretty big fans of reader response theory. So the paper is a really great read, Taylor. And I love that you engage straight up and say, in the tradition of queer theory, these thoughts are just going to muddy the waters further. Um, <laughs> because I love that because queerness is inherently muddy and messy mm -hmm. and evades clarity and definition. So what was it that first drew you to ask about whether there is such a thing as a, you know, canon of queer fantasy and how queerness might manifest in a text? I, I think... I first became really interested in, in these questions of, of definition, these questions of kind of curating canons of queer fantasy and, and what we even define as queer fantasy. As I was approaching the end of my PhD, and I started noticing when I would attend conferences that, that there, there would be many moments where conversations about the history of queerness and fantasy would arise. And it felt like everyone had a, a different narrative of what exactly that history was. I, I think one of the really interesting things about fantasy academia is that it has such a close proximity to 
fantasy fandom as well. Um, often um, fandom spaces historically were the only places where academics studying fantasy could present their academic work on fantasy and have it taken seriously. So, so fandom spaces have been a really important space for critical inquiry into fantasy where academia maybe up until very, very recently hasn't been. And, and I, th- I think that's very, very interesting and, and great for a, a number of reasons. You know, it, it's fantastic for public engagement with scholarship and building connections that might not otherwise arise within other academic fields. But with that, it, it also shores up some potential issues of, of, of communication. And I, I think one of the ways that that emerges, or, or one, one, one of the ways that I started noticing that emerging at a lot of these conferences and symposiums that I was presenting at and engaging in conversations with other people at was that, for, for instance, I, I would get up and, and start talking about Ursula Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness, which is a novel published in 1969 that I think really speaks to a lot of contemporary queer concerns still. And then I would be talking to a person who had an idea of queer fantasy as emerging in the 1990s. And then there would be another person who would say, well, we really haven't had a lot of good queer fantasy until you know, maybe the early 2010s. And I, I think what often happened was we were all approaching the texts from different perspectives and with different interpretive frameworks in mind. And, and what would often happen is we would end up talking past each other mm-hmm. in these conversations. And so I, I think that was the point where I became really interested in really putting on paper, you know, what what do I think is a queer mode of historicizing fantasy. And and again, I, I don't think I really arrived at a definitive answer. Um, I, I think I, I did arrive at, at a place that is a lot messier. But I think that in kind of diving into that mess and in diving into some of the questions that really thinking about queerness and its relationship to literature and its relationship to the history of, of a genre and what a genre can do with queerness, I, I, I think it's still leads us down some really interesting avenues that are worth paying attention to and and worth staying with and and cultivating just as as we think about not just scholarly study but you know how how do we read within queer communities and and how do we function as communities of interpretation that actually produce meaning when it comes to approaching a text so yeah that that was that was what i started to notice was, was just a lot of those conversations where it, it felt like we weren't entirely on the same page or, or we were talking past each other and and then thinking about how how to come at that from somebody who is equally interested in fantasy and also queer theory. That's really interesting to me. Um, one of the conferences I go to is the Popular Culture Association of America's conference, uh, their national conference, because they have a really good Tolkien studies area. And most of the people who are talking about queerness and Tolkien are honestly, they're talking about fan fiction most of the time. Mm. Like I have had my eyes opened over the past like five or six years so much to fan fiction because so many people study it. Like occasionally we'll get uh, somebody who's doing a queer reading of a specific part of the Lord of the Rings, but like almost exclusively it's fans and fan fiction and fan art that's being discussed in terms of like queerness. 
Like, have you, have you looked into any of that? Because it seems like most of what you're doing is uh, primary text. A, a lot of it is primary text, although I, I will say I, I do have a funny anecdote about fan fiction, which is that a, a couple of years ago, I spoke on, on a panel at Oxenmoot, which is a Tolkien Society yeah. conference. I, I spoke on a panel on new voices in Tolkien scholarship. And immediately right after the panel, Una McCormack slid into my DMs, just, have you read this queer erotic fan fiction? <laughs> um, you know, and, 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 and she, she's great because she's a, a figure who kind of inhabits all three of those worlds, who, who inhabits, you know, the, the, the world of fan fiction and, and fandom, the world of academia, and also the world of original fiction creation as well you know she she is a, a creative practitioner within fantasy and science fiction too but it, it was just such a funny en- en- encounter and, and such a wonderful kind of moment that that emerged out of that panel but yeah a, a lot of the work that I do is is concerned with primary text I, I do have colleagues who are really really into fandom studies and, and fan fiction but it, it's it's not something that I, I really specialize in as, as my main area of study it, it's just something that's kind of on on my radar on, on the periphery yeah like I wonder now if the reason why people study that is uh, something you mentioned in this talk is about how things are identifiably queer like they're queer because Mm. some of the main characters are like explicitly queer as opposed to like a queer reading of a text i wonder if people have a tendency to focus on that because it's easily identifiable as queer Mm. (laughs) Mm. i i think that's something that is it's a really understandable tendency right you know and, and and it's something that i think about when i'm seeking out texts for, for study. I'm, I'm working right now on a project focusing on the, the kind of rhetorics and poetics of male homoerotic desire and religious devotion and how those things can come together in fantasy. And when I'm trying to identify source texts for that, I absolutely use a lot of those databases, a, a lot of the, the lists that people curate, just because it, it's often a convenient way of looking at, you know, here's something that's likely to have something related to to what I'm researching, and and I I think it is interesting that you know f- fantasy and science fiction studies have been literary fields that that tend to focus heavily on the representation side of of things. I I, I don't fully know completely why that is, other than just coming back to that idea of the proximity between academic study and fandom. And, and people tend to study things that they are fans of, and people tend to like to be fans of things that offer an easy mode of identification or, or mode of recognition, I suppose, for them. And, and, and that's something that I completely understand. But it, it's, it's also one of those things where I, I think because there's been so much focus on that within the scholarship, something that we've maybe left behind a little bit is how do we apply queer reading methods to texts, whether they are overtly, legibly queer or not. My thinking around this has been shaped a lot 
by actually one of my former master's students. And last summer, I was supervising a dissertation project that they were working on. Shout out to, to Kate Fry, by the way, if, if you're listening. But she, she was working on a dissertation project on queer normativity in fantasy fiction. And as part of that, she came up with this idea that she termed mimetic queerness. In, in other words, are characters in this text queer in the same way that somebody would be queer in our world? Is, is that queerness legible according to the, the ways that we detect or evaluate or interpret queerness in our world? Or is the queerness located in some element of the fantasy, the secondary world that differs even from queer identities in, in our world? You know, is, is it doing something else or, or presenting an alternative way of understanding gender and sexuality? And I, I've, I've stuck with that because I find it a really handy way of, of thinking about different ways of encountering queerness and fantasy you know are are we recognizing something as mimetic queerness as something that's queer in the way that we would understand it in our world or is there something else going on there is is there something in the world building or in the way that we perceive or interpret or respond to certain events in the text that is making it read as queer to us taylor in that paper you asked, and you kind of touched on it now, what I feel is a really important and captivating question. By what criteria are we to judge that queer sexualities are or are not explicitly present in a given text, given the histories of censorship, invisibility, and secrecy often attached to depictions of queer desire, presentation, and embodiment in literature? So, and, and how else might queerness manifest in a text? My question is, what did you find as you looked into sort of the historiography of queer canon in fantasy? Why do these questions matter so much? Well, I, I'm, I think I'm going to take the, the first part of that question first, just because I, I, I think a, a lot of what I have found is, is that there, there just still has been a lot of focus on overt representation, I, again, for understandable reasons with, within the literature. I, I think the reason why it matters to me to kind of expand our idea of, of how queerness can manifest in a text or to maybe look at multiple ways that that can be the case it is is because of a lot of those historical factors you know that that you know there there, there have been so many texts and and authors that exist in this kind of state of either closetedness or censorship or some other reason for for needing to conceal an overt form of queerness. But also, along with that, I think fantasy itself has such amazing potential for articulating queerness in in ways that don't need to be overt. So a a text that I often like to refer back to, and and I I refer to it, I think, briefly in that paper is a, a novel by Hope Mirley's called Blood in the Mist. This is an early 20th century fantasy text published in 1926. It's really interested in... So, so basically, the, the premise of, of the novel is that there's this country that exists on the borders of fairyland, and it's in the early stages of developing a mercantile capitalist economic system. And through that process, it has sort of closed its borders off 
from Fairyland. And specifically, it has banned the traffic in fairy fruit. And fairy fruit is associated with a very kind of melancholic, but also very joyful artistic sensibility, strength of emotion. It's also strongly associated with death within the text. And I I love this novel because I think it has so many insightful things to say about queerness and about existing as queer, about the fluidity and situational nature of of queerness as well. And and I I think it's such a remarkable text. You know, it's it's written by Hope Mirlees, who was a lesbian. She had a relationship with the the classic scholar Jane Harrison that if, if you read author bios of her actually still tends to be spoken of in quite euphemistic terms. But I, I, I really... Just being pals. Scals being gal pals. It, it, it's so funny. I, I teach... Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I teach this novel all the time. And, and inevitably, when I bring this up, students will go, gals being gal pals. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I think it, it's, it's such an insightful text about queerness that doesn't contain any overt depictions of queerness. And, and yet also doesn't really need to, because it, it is a text that's largely about euphemism, about the ways that we deny the presence of queerness, even when it's staring us in the face, about how queerness, again, as I say in the paper, exists everywhere that it shouldn't. You know, it, it kind of flies under the radar, and it exists in places where it's thought not to exist. And the the hiddenness of queerness within the text itself, I think, enriches a reading of of what it's commenting on in that sense. So I I think fantasy is a mode of writing that can not just allow us to smuggle in queerness under the radar euphemistically, but it can actually help us to enrich and, and widen our understanding of what queerness is. It, it, it allows us to use language that's not normally available to us when we're talking about our day-to-day lives to imagine how our lives are, but also how our lives could be, the, the kinds of worlds that we could build as well. So yeah, I, I, I think I think it's, it's really interesting that there's been a lot of work done about the queer potential of, of fantasy. And I think a lot of work that is still yet to be done about that. Oh, I want to jump in here really quick because what you just said sounds an awful lot like Tolkien's vision of recovery that he Mm -hmm. talks about in On Fairy Stories, that you're put into a fantastic world to start seeing the primary world in a different way. And I, this just makes me think more and more that Tolkien is an inherently queer writer, which Mm. is... (laughs) going to get me in trouble in, in some conferences. <laughs> get us all in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> the good kind of trouble. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if you've read Jane Chance's book, Tolkien Self and Other, This Queer Creature, but that's very much the argument that she makes in, in that text, that Tolkien is just inherently interested in, in the queer things that jar with our habitual way of encountering things in in the primary world. And yeah, it's I, I completely agree. I think recovery is such a powerful, it can be a powerful queer tool because it, it can defamiliarize and unsettle things that we just take for granted and and constructions of reality that we tacitly accept 
or 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 that 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 become perpetuated and, and imposed upon other people and enforced. And and I think the recovery of fantasy is it has such potential to be a form of resistance to that. I'm fascinated by the idea of recognizing and constructing the queer fantasy canon also just we've obliquely touched on some of the different ways that it is difficult to identify these things in in previous writings and writings from other eras and other you know non-western civilizations and, and things like that because of how criminalized or shunned or what have you the the process of discussing this has been like it's only in i would imagine the last few decades really that you taylor can do scholarly research on this topic and own that your interest is not merely academic that mm. you you have an investment in this personally as a researcher who has a queer identity so i i'm utterly fascinated by that and Within about 10 minutes of the time that I was reading a draft of your paper in order to prepare for this podcast, a friend had sent me a quote from a book. It was published in 1998, and it's called Pages Passed from Hand to Hand. And there's a quote that I wanted to pull out from there. The author here had said, for even if like Proust and Wilde, you have super sensitive antennae a capacity to detect even the faintest stirrings of homosexual longing. The fact is that you are living in a world where the vast majority of readers and critics are so unfamiliar with the mm. signs that they can hurry through an account of homosexual love affair as uncompromised as that in Bayard Taylor's Joseph and his friend and not even register what it means. Mm. And I know that there are points that you talked about in that paper of things that arguably belong in queer fantasy canon mm -hmm. that do get overlooked that we haven't necessarily all had the ability to access and delve into and see how all of that connects because mm -hmm. it has been so fractured and so underground for so long. So are there any any particular texts that you want to make a, a case for in, in that that we should have a familiarity with or that it would be delightful to be able to go back and, and read and make sure that we have an awareness and familiarity? Well, one that I'm going to advocate for, just because it, it's it's also been just very prominent on people's radar in the past couple of years because of the recent film, is Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which I think has, has such an interesting and playful arguably relationship to to queerness and queer desire and in the way that it oh, yeah. um that, that that it kind of plays with and and subverts the the rules of medieval courtly love towards queer ends where um yes. sir gawain finds himself at, at the castle of of lord and lady bertilac and strikes up a deal with them that that whatever he receives in that house he he will give back to the lord of the house in kind and Throughout his stay there, the Lady Bertilac keeps trying to seduce him and, and keeps showering him with kisses. And Gawain is placed in a double bind because he can't accept her advances. You know, he, he, he can't infringe upon 
this marriage. That would not be the honorable thing to do. But he also has to return the kisses in kind to, to Lord Bertillac. And you get the impression reading the poem that he's actually kind of enjoying that. And, and, and that they, they, they do enter this kind of strangely playful but, but intimate relationship, you know, made, made even more complex by the fact that Lord Bertillac is, in fact, the Green Knight. So, so that, that's one that I, I think has just been very prominent on people's radar recently. In terms of fantasy texts themselves, I think one that people tend to overlook quite a bit, again, it's, an, it's another Arthurian one, is T.H. White's The Once and Future King which I think mm. in the figure of Sir Lancelot has such a poignant, you know, again, to me, very personally resonant depiction of queer desire that is not acknowledged as queer, even by the person who is desiring, but that desire is still very palpable within the text. And it complicates the love triangle dynamic between King Arthur Guinevere and Sir Lancelot, because not only is Sir Lancelot in love with Guinevere, he's also in love with Arthur. And the reason why he became a Knight of the Round Table in White's version is because he's in love with Arthur. And then finally, another series that I wanted to just highlight as one that is is very influential, but one that I, I don't see enough people talking about is Samuel Delaney's Neverion series, which is a, a sword and sorcery series published between the late 1970s um, and mid-1980s by Samuel Delaney, who people don't know is a Black gay science fiction and fantasy author. And, and he's really interesting because he's... He's very invested in in reader response and and in what what Eve Sedgwick would call reparative reading of, of finding these literary traditions that are historically very antagonistic towards him and and hostile towards him and and seeing if there's a way that he can break them open and and reinvent them and find something of meaning and and also find something subversive within them. So the Neverion series, broadly speaking tells the story of an ongoing slave rebellion within this fictional world. But it also has a lot of interesting things to say about the relationship between queer desire, race, power, economics. The third volume in the series, Flight from Neverion, is also recognized as one of the first American literary works to tackle the AIDS crisis. There's a portion of that text that keeps pivoting between Delaney's own chronicling of his life during the AIDS crisis in New York City as it's happening, and an eerily similar pandemic that is happening within the fictional world that he has created. It's it's a hugely important series, and and it, it doesn't show up on people's lists, I think, nearly enough in terms of you know, for, for how influential it is as, as a work of, of queer fantasy literature. So, so that, that's kind of three different ones. That, that's, you know, a, a taproot text from the Middle Ages that informs a lot of contemporary fantasy. And then looking at an early 20th century fantasy work that I think has really important queer subtext and, and, and arguably text. I, I think Lancelot's desire in, in T.H. White almost comes to the level of text. And then an explicitly queer work that I think has been very, very influential in the genre. 
I just want to throw out real quick, if you haven't read Spear by Nicola Griffith yet, um, she's taking on uh, the Percival story, but Ooh. it goes really heavily into, well, Percival's gender bent, but it goes really mm-hmm. heavily into the Lancelot, Guinevere, uh, Arthur triad. Ooh. It was very well, good. That sounds really good. <laughs> Thanks for calling me out, Alicia. I bought it on your recommendation, but I haven't read it yet. <laughs> read Hild first. Yeah I, yeah, I have Hild on my bookshelf. I need to read at some point just because it's extremely my shit. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very good. Spear is a lot shorter, easier to get through. But man, Hild is so good. I gave them both yeah. to myself for Christmas. So, <laughs> Well, I was going to say that like the subtext of the Lancelot Guinevere Arthur story is also kind of given to explicit text in Guy Gabriel Kay's Yonavar Tapestry. Mm. If any of y'all have read that, there's it's been a really long time since I read it. But, you know, spoiler alert, I guess, for a 30 year old book um, uh, or trilogy. But it basically ends with, you know, it's the, the three of them. We kind of go off to heaven together as hand in hand in hand. So you talking about the Once and Future King kind of brought to mind reading that and kind of having that kind of body sort of experience where I was like, oh, that's something that I was feeling when I was reading mm. the Once and Future King. And here it is kind of explicit, which I kind of wanted to touch back on that because something that I really responded to in your presentation was where you say querying fantasies canons may involve similarly intuitive searches for kinship in places where it is presumed not to appear in textual encounters unmarked by specific identity designations, but toward which nonetheless inexorably drawn Perhaps as queer readers, it is best to approach fantasy with an emphasis on its ability to draw our attention to what is otherwise unsayable, illegible, or taboo about our bodies and desires. And I love that sort of like bodily experience that we have sort of as as queer people encountering a text and kind of drawing out the queerness in a text with with our bodies and kind of having the act of reading being a really intuitive kind mm-hmm. of, you know, full body sense. So I was really responding to that. And I was kind of wondering if you could expand a little bit more about some of what you were saying about like what is unnameable and what is kind of unsayable, but nonetheless deeply felt. Mm. Yeah. So I, I, I think one of the things that I love about queer reading strategies is that they really do expand on a lot of the insights from reader response theory, where where queer reading, uh, and a a lot of strands of queer reading anyway, say, look, you know, forget how you feel like you're supposed to be reading this text. How are you actually reacting to it? How are you feeling about the text when you're engaging with it? And also, are, are there important things that can be gained even from strong misreadings of a text, when we're having just a, an intuitive reaction to a text that we ostensibly shouldn't be having, or, or that's ostensibly the wrong way of reading a text. I, I think this is where we kind of get into some of the conflicts that exist within Tolkien studies about authorial intent versus reader response. And and, and I, I, I think that's really important. I, I think it's really, yeah, I, I, it's... I lost my train of thought there, um, <laughs> but uh, I 
Just quickly, I think that one of the reasons why that is something that is so hammered into us that we're reading the text the wrong way is because how literature and like English is taught in mm-hmm. specifically in America, yeah. like in yeah. secondary school, you are very much trying to read a specific way into a text. And I think probably as queer people, I had a really hard time with that because my teacher would be like, oh, well, the curtains are blue because the character's sad. And I'm like, that's not how I read it at all. Maybe the curtains are blue because the character likes boys. <laughs> Maybe the curtains are just blue. Yeah. The, the curtains are blue because the gentleman down the street had blue curtains and our main oh. character finds that gentleman attractive. Okay. Um, oh, you like yeah. blue curtains. I like blue curtains too. Um, oh. Yeah. But I, I, I think... It, yeah, it, it's it, it's interesting. So I I I, th- I think that's my main kind of takeaway from kind of applying queer reading strategies is is to really think about the, the reactions that we ourselves are having when we encounter a text. And the the example that I kind of root this in 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 the paper, and and I think just generally it, it's it's the reason why I feel as strongly as as I do about broadening our methods and strategies of interpretation from queer standpoints is I have such strong memories of reading The Lord of the Rings as a teenager. And I my, I have a very similar experience to you, Leah. I, I was not able to come to terms with my queerness until I had left the South and, and was in my mid-20s. And I, I have such a distinct memory, though, of reading the passage in The Two Towers, where Sam is making stew and watching Frodo sleep and meditating on his face and his his attraction to and, and desire for that face and, and his love for Frodo. And and I I remembered having such a visceral, almost bodily reaction to that of of longing, of of you know, I want some part of that. That represents something that I want that I can't name. And I think it's interesting, you know, have you know, being very strongly evangelical at that point and closeted and just not explicitly desiring a queer life at all at that point. I, I don't know how I would have responded if that had been an explicitly queer moment. And and I, mm-hmm. I think it's something that I think I would have been resistant to had it been. Mm-hmm. But because it was non-explicit because it was subtextual or, or subtext that I was at least identifying in the text, whether or not that was the intended reading. That was a moment of kinship that was accessible to me as the person that I was in that moment. And, and I, I think that's so important as well to really honor that experience of not being able to name what you're desiring. I, th- I think there's such a rich archive of experiences that can be found there if, if we really honor that and, and try to give voice to that and hold open a space for it, you know, to, to hold a space for things that we maybe can't define, can't really put other words to in any other way. A- another aspect of this, I think, as it relates to fantasy specifically is that fantasy, of course, is able to present us with all kinds of different bodies and, and bodies in all kinds of different 
combinations. So a series of texts that I talk about in my book a lot is Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea series, which features characters who are simultaneously human and dragon. And they often occupy this kind of marginal space with regard to gender in that text. And I, I, I think that's so, it, it's such a potent way of thinking through the ways that our bodies are supposed to be versus the ways that our bodies actually do change shape and show up in places where they're ostensibly not supposed to, especially if we're queer. You know, they, they show up in combinations that we were told they're not supposed to and move in ways that they're not supposed to. I just gave a lecture earlier this week on monstrosity in literature. And I, I think monsters in fantasy can be such a great way of reclaiming bodily otherness and celebrating it. So, so that, that that's another aspect of that related to fantasy specifically. You know, we don't even necessarily have to relate to human characters. There's other kind of forms of embodiment available to us through fantasy that can be really ripe for exploration and and ripe for again attending to how how we respond to that. How how do we take stock of our reactions to seeing those things on the page? Well, I feel like such a common experience with a lot of queer fans, especially in Tolkien and like, you know, like among like Disney fans is like how how much queer coding there is in yeah. in various villains, um, especially in Disney films. But I've had these experiences, you know, speaking with fans who are big like Sauron fans. Right. <laughs> and who are absolutely, absolutely fascinated by by him. And other people get very weirded out and upset by it because you're not supposed to identify with the villain right and it's like the response that i always have to these people is like you're not queer are you because <laughs> we find ourselves in villains we find ourselves in monsters so often mm. it's been codified like with the case code and everything visual depiction in film has required that the only place we could exist is in villainry Mm. And in monstrosity. And it's like kind of coming back to that line of like we sort of find ourselves in places we're not supposed to be. And that's what kind of brings that to my mind. And again, it kind of brings back to mind, you know, some of the resistance that there is in in Tolkien to reader response. And again, this sort of like reading this this queerness that, you know, we feel deep in our bodies and and we we can see ourselves, but people get very resistant to it. Mm. And again, kind of stack on the monstrosity in, you know, in how they perceive us. Mm -hmm. Which kind of brings us to something that we were talking, that you talked about in uh, your paper. You noted that the uh, Tolkien Professor podcast, Corey Olson, who went out of his way to explicitly dismiss queer readings of Lord of the Rings, particularly that, that relationship between Frodo and Sam, which I also had a very visceral body queer response to in your paper you say Corey Olson claims that a reading of the relationship between Frodo and Sam as romantic quote desecrates the text vision of a chaste platonic male intimacy and I was wondering if you could say a little bit more there because <laughs> I <laughs> gladly <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> gladly, gladly. I, and yeah. and it, 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 it's it's interesting because I I've, I've gone back and forth on on my use of the word desecrates because I, it it isn't the word that Olson himself uses, but I I do in in a sense think it it is 
subtextually implied possibly by his positioning of, of these different readings in relation to each other. And I, I, I wrote a Twitter thread about this at the time where I, I just said, you know, I also used to really admire and stick up for Tolkien's depiction of profound intimacy between men. And then it just turned out I actually just wanted to have sex with men. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, so, so, so oh that, that, that's, that, that's my jokey response to that. It, it, it is an honest response as well, um, because, you know, that, that, that for the longest time used to be one of the talking points I used to hit on about what I respond to in Tolkien. But I, I, I think it's interesting how those readings are always positioned in competition or, or conflict with each other, where I don't see a conflict existing. And I, I was talking about this not long ago with my colleague, Mariana Rios Maldonado, who you should totally have on the podcast. She, she's a brilliant Tolkien scholar. On our, on our wish list. Yeah, she, she's fantastic. But, but she pointed out that even if we take that reading at face value as, as a depiction of platonic male intimacy, it's still different from what we see normally in heterosexual male friendships. It, it still transgresses the limits of what is acceptable within modern heterosexual masculinity. And so on those grounds, even if we don't read it as romantic or sexual, it can still arguably be read as queer in, in some sense. And I, th- I think it's it's again, so interesting that reading for authorial intent boxes you into a vision of the text that is just singular, that anything outside that reading of the text has to supplant that reading, when I I don't think they need to be. I think we can hold multiple readings of the text together. I've encountered multiple people who also read Frodo and Sam as asexual as well. And and that's a reading that I think you can absolutely hold together with other queer readings of the text. Yeah, Frodo definitely. Sam (laughs) may be more difficult to read. Sam Fox. Sam Fox. Cannon. Coming out strongly in favor of Sam fucking. Um, <laughs> want to do a demisexual reading of Sam? <laughs> demisexual reading of Sam. I, I, I think demisexual reading of available. Sam, I'm here for. Yeah. Oh, as the demisexual, I'm, I'm here for all, all of those readings. Um, well, and I love, they can coexist. I hold all of them. You yeah. know, like I see the validity. We contain points. multitudes, you guys. Yeah, yes. ab- absolutely. Uh, again, the beauty of queerness is is that you know we're we're always. I I I think queer is such a wonderful word because it means that it's not the final word. There's always more to be said and more to discover. The the way that we're mm-hmm. often mysteries to ourselves, even and and can surprise ourselves in in what we desire or what we pursue in our lives. But yeah, that notion, we can hold all those different readings together and it, and they don't need to be in conflict with each other. It's something that I feel very strongly about. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that really kills me about people who specifically about Tolkien want to dive into authorial intent is that these are people who 
don't subscribe to reader response theory because they think it's postmodernism and therefore mm. useless. But the whole reason we know anything about Tolkien's authorial intent is because he wrote it down and therefore you are right. interpreting it as you read it. So you have your own inclination of what his authorial intent is because none of us live in his brain and therefore none of us know what his actual authorial intent is. And to just dismiss something like that close relationship between Frodo and Sam as being like, oh yeah, they were just friends. When you actually read some of the stuff that Tolkien writes about his relationship with his Batman, mm -hmm. it is also bordering on queer. Mm -hmm. If not yeah. overtly queer. He the profound love and respect he had for this subordinate person. That's yeah. not unusual in that particular period of history Absolutely. either. One of the things that always just gets gets my goat and makes me go drag out my soapbox is when people have an argument that you you can't have a reading a reading of Sam and Frodo that's in any way queer because well history it's just based on the the relationship between you know officers and their their Batman and, and all of this and it's like hi d have we not read history <laughs> are we not familiar with what what's going on in the trenches okay yeah have have we not read wilfred owen and siegfried sassoon at any rate um <laughs> oh, no. right yeah <laughs> and just like tolkien only hung out with dudes mm -hmm. like, yeah. it, uh, homosocial is how people yeah. generally characterize tolkien he only as an adult basically only hung out with female students that who he was helping and his wife like different when he was a child he had a lot more like feminine influence on his life but like his entire friend group were just a bunch of dudes that hung out and a not insignificant portion of those female students were in fact queer women yes whose books he recommended and, and, and a lot of the dudes <laughs> he hung out with were queer men you know he and wh auden had yes. um, a very lively correspondence going on following the publication of the lord of the rings so there's all T tolkien's social sphere was in fact incredibly queer the, the artist molly ostertag did a fantastic write-up about this a few years back talking about Tolkien's queer influences and queer social sphere and yeah in incredibly queer in, in terms of the people that he spent time with and respected as fellow scholars and authors yeah yeah so I think that even reading it just for authorial intent and saying that there's absolutely no way it could potentially be queer is short-sighted at best. And also just dismissive of modern lenses of literary criticism. And I don't understand why so many people mm -hmm. have such a hard problem with that, other than the fact that it maybe shakes their mores a little bit. Mm -hmm. mm. I wanted to pick up on something that you said, Alicia, about Tolkien's own letters and his writing about his own intent itself being a text that you need to interpret and you know extrapolate from and, and it, it just reminded me of something that John D. Caputo who is a deconstructive theologian often says um, and he talks about this in relationship to, to the Bible in particular he, he says that if you really want to find out what a text says put it on the table closed and wait for it to just impart its meaning to you. And <laughs> eventually you, you find that it doesn't actually say anything. The, the work of reading and the work of interpreting is, is what creates the meaning in the text. And, and that, that's such a good way of 
encapsulating reader response theory and, and why it matters um, and why we can't really get away from it. There's always that step of interpreting the text, even if, if we're not perceiving that as we're doing it. Yeah, like in art school, I went for visual art and we are taught to view art as a dialogue from the artist to the painting and then from the painting to the viewer. So like both parts of that are important. I come at Tolkien studies in a way where I don't think that authorial intent should necessarily be completely thrown out. And that's kind of a controversial take. But I also think that reader response is equally, if not more important than Mm. the authorial intent. And I think that the way that those two things the dance that they make together is what makes the art and what makes the meaning. Mm. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm weird. I, I'm, I'm kind of stuck between two critical views there. <laughs> I don't think it's contradictory though. Yeah, I, I like I, that. It's a conversation, right? The entire work is like it's a conversation. I think Chuck Tingle actually uh, <laughs> was talking about this <laughs> some time ago. About God how- bless Chuck Tingle. Yeah, I say, you know, world treasure, uh, uh, Chuck Tingle. And he was sort of talking about how, you know, you as the audience, the recipient of a piece of art, I guess, you're, you're actually a creative co-participant in that creation. You know, the art that emerges is kind of more than the sum of its parts, which is mm. the actual maybe physical piece and the person who created it and the person who is perceiving it. And I've always loved that that kind of like, you know, it's this experience, the is what emerges out of a text is it's at least three parties, basically, you know, mm. and it, what emerges between an author and a reader is ultimately what that art really is. Mm. To kind of bring it back, you know, to, to, to bring a little bit of the theology back into it, actually, we, we were talking a little bit as we were preparing for this episode about the kinship that we feel with texts and, and how we feel like we, when, when, when we encounter queer texts, we're kind of encountering somebody who is, we're, we're, we're forging an intimacy with that text. Mm-hmm. I have a really good friend who does a lot of work around queer and trans readings of medieval theology. And he specifically mm-hmm. is, is really interested in the way that medieval people engaged with the notion of the incarnation within illuminated manuscripts. And one of the things that he has pointed out is that manuscripts were themselves printed on vellum, which is made from animal skins. So when you are seeing depictions of Christ, you're encountering that literally through the medium of skin. And what does that mean for then the intimacy that you feel with that text and how you're mm. meditating on the doctrine of the incarnation in that way. So, so that, that notion of, of intimacy with God becomes very, very real in the intimacy that is being mediated through the medium of skin in the text. Mm, mm. And, and, and I, oh, I think that's fascinating. That, that's, that's such a cool metaphor to me for thinking about ways that queer texts again that that idea of queer reading being very embodied about in, engaging with this textual object as an embodied person and the the reactions that you're having to it and and also whether we can think about that 
engagement with the text as a kind of relationship in, in some way. Yeah, you gave a really great quote from Eve Sokovsky Sedgwick that kind of speaks to this, I think. It, the quote is, the ability to attach intently to a few cultural objects, objects of high or popular culture or both, objects whose meaning seemed mysterious, excessive, or oblique in relation to the codes most readily available to us, became a prime resource for survival. We needed for there to be sites where the meanings didn't line up tidily with each other, and we learned to invest those sites with fascination and love. I love the idea that we sort of have this embodied investment in these works, and what we invest is kind of a full-bodied experience of fascination and love. And I don't, I don't know, that that line that kind mm-hmm. just kind of really uh, stuck out to me as like you were saying, as like a queer person having a, a kind of a full body embodied experience with a text and how we sort of invest these texts with love for love for ourselves and mm. a sense of survival. And we kind of there's a reason that we respond so fervently to these readings. It's kind of like it kind of gives us a chance to to love ourselves. At least that's kind of been my experience. Mm. Um with Tolkien and kind of seeing, being able to kind of see myself, even if I couldn't really name it at the time, kind of gave me a place, foundation to hold myself with a lot more, more tenderness and a lot more love. That honestly reminds me a little bit of when you're watching the special features of Fellowship, when Ian McKellen is talking about making sure that that handhold happens between Frodo and Sam and how he saw that in the text and other people are going to be looking for it in the text. I think one of the reasons why those movies are so successful is because they had Ian McKellen there making sure (laughs) that some of that queer subtext actually made it to the screen. Mm. I mean, the, the position of recognizing that there are going to be people looking for it and that it would be easy for other people to overlook. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. that tension, I mean, that's what we've been talking about all the way along here with the texts that are explicitly queer or that are subtextually queer and all that, and, and the difficulty in knowing, recognizing, and accessing a queer canon. And, and I also love that because it's an example where reader response actually becomes intent. In, in the way that the text is reinterpreted and recontextualized. Another example of this, we, we were talking about monstrosity earlier. Have people here seen the performance that Sasha Velour gave where she is performing as Gollum? Yes. Yeah. It is absolutely brilliant. It, it's, it's one of the best things I've ever seen. The way that that performance recontextualizes the character of Gollum and the way it plays with the surveillance that Gollum is under as somebody who has been taken in by the ring and is under the the surveillance of the eye of Sauron to me is so fascinating. I, I, Sasha Velour is just one of my favorite drag performers because she embraces, you know, the, the abject, the villainous, the monstrous in her drag. And and I, I felt like that was such a, an amazing reinterpretation of Tolkien that I think is actually doing some pretty smart reading of the text and and thinking about Gollum as a figure who exists 
in relation to the closet, for instance, or, or in relation to discourses of, of representation of queer monstrosity. So yeah, if you if you haven't seen it, you, you can you can just Google Sasha Velour Gollum, and it, and it will be one of the first results that comes up. It's amazing. She lip syncs one of the scenes from the Peter Jackson films, and then does a lip sync of Kate Bush's Wuthering Heights as Gollum. It's wonderful and hilarious and strangely poignant, and I I just love it. Yeah, it is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to check that out. <laughs> kind of going back to. Frodo and Sam's relationship and just like subtext of queerness in Tolkien. Taylor, you quote uh, Jess Battis, mm-hmm. their essay, Gazing Upon Sauron. And they say any academic reading that imagines the Lord of the Rings is a sexless text, an impolitic text, a text without desire, has obviously missed the moments of longing, intimacy, and desire are articulated in acts of looking and touch between unlikely combinations of characters that really stood out to me because of the wistfulness and longing that pervades that entire text like Mm -hmm. i think is probably one of the most important themes is that longing and there are so many longing looks in that in those books and it really we were talking about sir gawain earlier it really hits that courtly love kind of thing and Tolkien would have been aware of that and mm. one of my favorite pairings is Legolas and Gimli and I'm thinking in terms of the the context of longing here is Gimli is talking like so poetically about the caves and Legolas is talking so poetically longingly about the trees and then they travel to these places to see the places where each other's longing is situated. Mm. That's beautiful. And as you say, Alicia, Tolkien is aware of what a journey means. He's aware of what longing means in in the tradition of courtly love and storytelling and all of that. And we are also very aware of that. (laughs) Yes. Very aware. (laughs) Like Frodo and Sam seem to be like baby's first ship. Because it is so overt in the narrative, and then you start doing queer ships, and then it just starts getting kind of out of hand. (laughs) (laughs) It's so interesting. You know, we we were talking about looking at queering texts as this kind of way of paying attention to our responses to the text and and as recognition. But I, I think that other thing that that notion of Frodo and Sam as being a kind of gateway to, to queer shipping touches mm. on is queering as a mode of insisting upon mm. our, our presence within the text as well, of, of insisting upon, no, I'm going to read the text this way, and how that in itself can be a very powerful kind of counter discourse to conservative readings or readings that are very much focused on authorial intent or focused on maintaining a specific image of the author. Queer reading as as saying, I am going to read it this way anyway, I think is really, really powerful. Again, I I come at that from the position of, of doing queer theology, which very much starts from the understanding that if we don't insist upon our presence within this tradition, no one's going to do that for us. That work, whether that's 
fair or unfair, that work does fall to us to insist upon our persistence within these spaces. I, I love yeah. Jess Battis' work in particular. I've really found their work really generative to think with recently, especially because they are really interested in that notion of fantasy as an articulation of longing, just fundamentally. Mm. Their doctoral thesis, which I also cited in my presentation, is focused around how magic in fantasy can often articulate a kind of melancholy or a kind of lack. And I think that's that's so important because it, it suggests a kind of movement as well. And, and thinking about orientation as what are we moving towards or, or what kind of structures the way that we locate ourselves and, and the way that we move. Again, very much linked to this idea of, of a journey and what form does that journey take and how do these characters interact with each other on this journey? The, the notion of the quest it is, yeah, just fundamentally, I think longing is built into the structure of that, not just in the sense that you're in search of something, or in, in the case of the Lord of the Rings, you're trying to get rid of something, but you're, you're you're seeking to preserve something that's that's very dear and very important to you. But I, th- I think also there's moments along the quest that produce that experience of longing. I love the chapter in Lothlorien because I think it articulates longing so beautifully, this kind of wonder at this place that you're in and, and what you're experiencing, but also that melancholy of the awareness that that is going to end and, and the quest is going to continue. And yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly where I'm going with that idea of longing, but I, I, I really like the notion of, of fantasy as fundamentally just articulating a kind of longing and there being something very yeah. clear in that that we can attach to desire, whether that's desire for a particular person or, or desire for a different world or a different life longing just runs through the entire structure of fantasy. Yeah. And as you're talking about the journey, I'm reflecting that a journey often represents a liminal space, a a Mm. space where things are in flux, things are changing. The process of a journey is inherently queer. Mm. And so as, as we examine all of the, the fantastical journeys from one destination to another, the, stories in the space between and it issues categorization mm-hmm. as queerness does yeah i i like that that, that it's it's constantly on the move the the quest narrative is is always on the move always in flux and the notion that the the journey fundamentally changes you as well you know there, there, there's there's things that are irrevocably changed as, as you're also moving through the narrative space so yeah i, I really like that idea yeah did y'all have anything else that you wanted to touch on? No, I'm just over here overly pleased with myself for being like, no, I've now claimed all fantasy is queer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, in a sense that, I mean, that, that, yep. that's, that, that, that's part of what Battis is arguing, you know, and, and, and when they say that fantasy is manifestly queer, which is what they claim in the conclusion to their thesis. Love that phrase. Yeah. And, yes. and, and it, they're, they're very clear on the fact that 
they don't mean by that that all fantasy takes full advantage of that queerness or, or that queer potential. You know, they're, they're talking about how a lot of fantasy can actually reassert or, or reaffirm conservative familial organizations mm-hmm. or power structures. But just in the act of creating something that breaks with our notion of the possible and that again, going back to that notion of recovery, unsettles our habitual representations of things. You know, that that in itself implies a kind of queer activity. I don't know why this jumped into my head, but I have always read Eowyn and Faramir's relationship as being inherently queer. Mm. And I, I'm starting to maybe put a little bit of a finer point on that because a lot of people use Eowyn and Faramir's relationship as being a, you know, a, a taming of her. She becomes more traditionally feminine. And there are also people who have been doing research. Um, there's some papers in Perilous and Fair about it, about how there's like a balancing of masculine and feminine energy within Eowyn and Faramir. Like Faramir's a soft boy, Eowyn's a angry girl they get together and kind of balance each other out but Mm. i do think that there is something just inherently queer about eowyn's longing for freedom her journey into being a warrior her then the changing of her own morality to prefer healing over Mm -hmm. war and Mm -hmm. meeting up with faramir who is just a soft boy i love him so much (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and then going and using that Harnessing that destructive energy into something generative in mm. Ithilien. Yeah. It's not a really fine point yet, but it's getting there. I think I'm, I'm a paper is brewing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I also think masculinity in Tolkien in general tends to be quite soft. It, it, it is yeah. quite a soft masculinity. You know, I, I had a student who did a project on Eowyn last year. And one of the things that he brought forth in that project is, yeah, Eowyn becomes a healer, but also the way that Aragorn is identified as the heir to the throne of Gondor is by healing as well. And so healing is and differently... And Elrond's role also yeah, and, is uh, of a healer. And, and so healing is differently yeah. gendered within Middle-earth than it is in our world. And I think that's an important detail to kind of bring forth in the text that that indicates maybe how, how we are to read Eowyn's journey toward becoming a healer. Yeah. Oh, that's a really yeah, good point. She gives up destructive, toxic masculinity <laughs> for, <laughs> for the, for the a more form wholesome of masculinity, masculinity that yeah. Tolkien prioritizes yeah yeah so dude bros you need to uh read a little little differently don't you that would require them reading the rest of the text yeah reading Mm -hmm. in the first place perhaps (laughs) which i find is not always the case that has been done (laughs) yeah I was going to say that, like, the act of kind of touching back a little bit earlier, what we were talking about was sort of the act of reading something queer into a text is kind of an act of defiance. It's kind of a radical act against cis heteronormativity and sort of the oppressive structures of our existence, basically, the, the water that we kind of swim in. And I kind of feel like that this sort of tension between reading something as queer 
kind of in defiance of perhaps what other readers are reading and creating in kind of in their experience, it kind of brings us back to how when we as readers, we we don't exist like in a vacuum, right? Mm -hmm. We are sort of swimming in, especially queer people right now are sort of in a time where we are both kind of hyper visible and also at the same time trying to resist being stamped out of existence, Mm -hmm. especially in the United States where we have literally hundreds of various anti-queer bills and laws being passed where we have like examples like the don't say gay bill we have in the UK. The Anglican church just came out with a faux apology um, about how they've treated the LGBTQIA community in the past, but we're still not going to marry you in our churches. Marriage is, you know, still between a man and a woman. It's this kind of uh, is making me think about like our conversation about how restricting queer fantasy texts to things that are explicitly named and defined. It kind of makes us in a similar place to the text where it's sort of like we are both very, very visible and also very easy to kind of gloss over and pass over in a time where being passed over can be an act of survival. Or it can also be, you know, sort of an experience of destruction and sort of dismissal and silence. So that was a kind of a long and rambly way of getting to it kind of it just kind of made me think about like how our queerness kind of exists in this tension of being both very visible and also invisible at the same time. Mm-hmm. And depending on what, you know, is kind of going on, that can either be kind of an act of survival or it can be kind of an act of defiance as well. Mm. Yeah, that, that's really well put. I, I don't know that I have a, a ton to add to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does make me concerned about the baby queers right now, right? Mm. Like yeah, the, the people who are trying to determine what the safest way to go about living is. Mm-hmm. Like I understand uh, a lot of God, are Zoomers still kids? Like, I don't even know where that I think a lot of them is. are coming to adulthood now. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm already turned 18. Yeah, like kids who are in their teens and 20s who are just figuring out they're queer. Like, what, what a fantastic and also terrible time. We have mm-hmm. so many yeah. more words to describe what it is you are and so many more people who are in the open about being safe people to talk to and all of that but also just the crackdown by the conservative government is just horrible right now i've been thinking about this in the context of because someone had mentioned to me oh like it's it's getting better there's so much more queer representation in media in books like it's more overt and and thinking through this discussion that's amazing that's wonderful but we don't have the very easy access to the historical canon of what has come before us. It's, we're always digging for it. We're always trying to rebuild it every time it's torn down. And I worry that for young people or people who are newly coming to articulate their identity in this current day and age, that not having as much access to that historical canon and it being difficult to reach all of those pieces 
as there is an active effort to tear us and our media and our books and our words and our work down again, every time that's a little bit successful, I worry about how we connect back to our history because that's one of the only through lines of our entire history is constantly being cut off from it. What you were saying about being cut off from our history. Wait, I'm sorry. I have to interrupt to point that our recording cut off at that point, And that's just a little too meta. <laughs> Zencaster's like, I'm going to be a part of that tradition. I'm <laughs> And you're getting cut off now. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that is something that people who were under the age of 40 probably don't. I mean, I've, I've been to a couple of talks now where people have been talking about like the AIDS crisis as like ancient history and not Mm. like something that pretty recently happened that killed an entire generation of queer people, essentially. And was one of the things that helped like cut that flow of information from older queer people to younger queer people. Yeah. We lost a lot of elders and it's sort of tangentially related, but I, I do think that there is sort of a, a, a movement in the younger generation that is sort of trying to navigate their experience of being queer in sometimes in ways that neglects mm. or dismisses kind of like the earlier experiences of their community and i i think that we lost we lost so many elders so that we kind of lost a lot of people who could could have guided the young folks into having greater context and nuance with their with their own history and we ourselves our generation lost out on this as well like we mm. were directly impacted by by the AIDS crisis, by the current laws that are attempting to be passed. Like, we we are living in these cycles of oppressions. I think there's also a lot to be said about the way that we are often demonized and stigmatized within the media also contributes to that sense of generational isolation. Because we are deemed unsafe for young people to be around, those connections often are not forged. And I, I think that's almost as big a part of it as the destruction that AIDS has wrought. I'm very fortunate in my adult life to have quite a few intergenerational friendships with older queer people, although they probably will not thank me for <laughs> talking about them in those terms. <laughs> but but I, I have quite a few relationships with queer people who were around in the activism of the 60s and the 70s and through the 80s, who had massive parts to play in a lot of that and and who, who, who I'm able to have conversations about what that was like with them and also what we can take with us, you know, moving forward into facing whatever it is that's coming in the future. And and, and it also, you know, I, I, th- I think that does, that this conversation that we're having about being isolated and alienated from our history, I, I think it connects to what we've been talking about regarding approaching historical texts in that, you know, I, I don't think we should too readily dismiss that these texts have important things to say about queerness now to us. 
and also had important things to say about queerness then that are different from queerness now. I, I think there's a lot that can be gained from difference as well as finding kinship within those texts. But I think it also does raise the crucial question of if we have this very fluid understanding of engaging with queerness in historical texts, where does that leave us in terms of methods for preserving that history and, and curating that? You know, be, Because we can't really set firm boundaries around it the way that we maybe, to, to some extent at least, can for other forms of representation, you know, where, where, where does that leave us in terms of curation and preservation? Mm. After I delivered this presentation at the Once and Future Fantasies Conference back in the summer, Jennifer Atterbury, who is a folklorist, came up to me and said, look, you know, as, as a historian and as a folklorist, my impulse is to say, no, you know, w- with all the problems that canons have, we, we need some kind of canon, you know, we, we, we need some kind of archive that we can use to to preserve a lot of this material. And, and I was talking to her, and one of the things that she proposed, and, and I think that's something that's really interesting and something that I would like to pursue in the research that I'm doing going forward, is an archive of reader response, an archive that mm. seeks to document not just the texts themselves, but how have people interacted with them? And more broadly, how have people engaged with the vocabularies of fantasy to give voice to queer experiences in everyday life? Mm. So a, a lot of the research that I want to do going forward is going to be diving into archives and periodicals and looking at erotica and periodicals of grassroots organizations and, and kind of seeing the ways that fantasy, religion, and queerness intersect, or potentially how they don't intersect as well. You know, I I might not turn up much concrete information, and and that's also a possibility that I need to consider in terms of the implications it has for the work that I'm doing. But I'm really attracted to that notion of documenting our feelings about texts and media and how we respond to them, because I feel like that also makes up so much of what we consider queer life to be. You know, queer culture is so bound up in reinterpretation and repurposing of cultural and textual artifacts. Well, and there's so much of the things left unsaid that we are to pick up on. This morning I was reading just the introduction to a book called Bad Gays. I love that book. Yeah, yeah. It's it's about the more villainous gay characters, queer characters in history. You know, they they make the point of you know we all embrace you know, Oscar Wilde, but we kind of don't talk as much about Bosey because Bosey did some <laughs> shit later on. <laughs> We're not quite as eager to embrace, but in there they're also talking about the relationship to the laws in the Victorian era and the early 20th century as related to the Buggery Act of 1559. Terrible historian. I'm terrible at dates. But this Tudor era law, which was specifically designed in order to be able to allow the monarchy to criminalize, provide a means of a death penalty and then the seizure of lands 
to priests within the Catholic Church or within the Church of England later too, but to the church when there wasn't even a death penalty for murder for the clergy at that point. Mm. This specifically, like the civil criminalization of homosexuality, of queerness, is related to the seizure of church lands. And a lot of people who were not at the level of having this much land and power and all of that ended up being harmed and and killed as a result Mm. for centuries. So as we're looking at how people have responded to texts in the past and how we look at those responses now, understanding the stakes of what people were and weren't saying and how it was coded Mm -hmm. makes a huge difference for me, at least, in being able to pick up, oh, oh, at the time, this was known to be queer. It was recognized as queer. And just because I don't have that lexicon today doesn't mean that I won't get anything out of reading it now. Mm. Yeah. And and I think also uh, another important thing that's bound up in that is the different modes of being queer that have existed throughout history. A- another thing that I think Hugh Lemmy and Ben Miller pick up on in that book that is, is really, really resonant and really poignant is they, they really dispel this notion of an eternal queerness that we are only just now unearthing and and that it's the static thing that was just waiting to be discovered and those poor queers in the past just didn't have the words um to 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 talk about it and I, i think what they're so good at demonstrating is no the language did exist it's not the same language that we use now and conceptually it was understood differently at that point but that is something important to bear in mind. And, and, and again, it's like you said, Grace, just because the differences exist doesn't mean there's nothing of insight that we can find there. No, that sounds like an amazing project that would be of benefit to a lot of us. I'm, I'm really excited. I'm trying to get it funded at the moment. <laughs> that, that's the hard bit is, is getting people to give me money to go to these <laughs> archives and, and do this. So yeah. fingers crossed that it happens because it's something that I really want to do. Yeah, fingers massively crossed. It's, that's something that I kind of admire about Marquette's token archives is that it's specifically asking people to give their experience with Tolkien and saving it for history. I, I really feel like that that is a, a direction for archives to kind of towards and to kind of to think about a lot more. Yeah, that sounds like a really exciting project. I really, fingers super crossed to get funding for it. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. In terms of a closing thought, I, I might just end on the point that I end on in the paper itself, which is kind of where we're at now, a lot of what we've been discussing already about the ways that we are being targeted, being rendered simultaneously hyper-visible at the same time, while there are forces that are trying to erase us, invisibilize us, cut us off from our history, eradicate us in many ways. I mean, just in the past week, the UK government has just blocked a resolution by Scottish Parliament to reform the Gender Recognition Act to remove some of the legal barriers that exist for trans people to legally identify as their their current gender. So these are things that are definitely ongoing within the US and the UK. And I think where I still 
fall on on a lot of this, even with all of the difficulties and the potential unresolved questions that exist in terms of, I don't know, in some ways talking about how we read queer fantasy feels like a very small part of it. But there's another part of me that feels like we do need and, and we are going to need every potential tool at our disposal for nurturing ourselves and preparing for anything that might come our way. And and not just in a reactive sense, but also in thinking about what kinds of lives we want to build and what kind of world we want to actively pursue and, and push for. And, and so I think what I would end on is just to, to reiterate that, that my goal, I, I suppose, in, in continuing to talk about this and, and question this is in making sure that we have a variety of strategies, that, that we can equip ourselves to be nurtured by other worlds and to, to potentially dream of, of the world that we want to create as well. Yeah. This is how we survive. This is one of one of the ways that we keep surviving, like like we have for for ages and ages. I think we've talked in some previous episodes of the podcast about how those uh, conservative entities and even like neo fascist entities have identified fantasy as a place where they would like to have control ceded to them, where they would like to be able to utilize it to meet their own ends because it is such a powerful tool for imagination and for mobilization of people. And so I think absolutely it's important for us to recognize that fantasy is a place where we can look at building the world that we want to live in or interrogating the world that we do live in so that we can improve our primary world through the lens of what we learned in secondary worlds. Absolutely. Wow, that is a fantastic place to end. What a takeaway. And this is going to be like a super awkward transition now, but uh, Taylor, are there anything that you have uh, coming up that you would like to promote? I, I am currently involved in a research network that has just um, started up in Scotland called the Future Voices of Scottish Science Fiction and Fantasy. So you can check that out online. But we are hosting a series of events throughout this year, focusing on different aspects of of, of fantasy and science fiction writing and how creative practitioners in Scotland specifically are using fantasy and science fiction to explore current political and social concerns. I'm one of the academic respondents for that, which means that I am writing an article in response to to one of the events coming at the central question of the event from from more of a theory-based academic perspective. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I need to plug. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of things that I have in the works that I don't want to say too much about yet, just because they're just getting off the ground. But my, my book, Queering Faith in Fantasy Literature, is available via Bloomsbury. 
If you are affiliated with a university at all, I would strongly encourage you to ask your university to get a copy because it is very, very expensive to buy if you are just buying it as an individual. And that is just the nature of academic publishing, unfortunately. There should be a paperback edition coming out soon that will be significantly cheaper. But right now, the hardcover is very pricey. And I, I feel like I apologize for that almost any time I promote the book. <laughs> I think that there is a paperback available soon on Amazon for like 40 there bucks will or something. Be. So. Yeah. 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 So the, right the, the, the paperback is, so is, is on affordable. the horizon. But yeah, you, you, you can check that out pretty much wherever you can find books online. I would strongly suggest if, if you live in the UK, you can buy it on bookshop.org.uk and support your local bookshop. And, and that's the way that I would prefer you to, to buy it if, if you're ordering it online. You can also follow me on Twitter at Taylor W. Driggers. And I regularly post updates about my research and teaching and just other things I'm involved with there. Yeah, that's all I have to plug, really. Well, thank awesome. you so, so much for coming and talking with us. This was such a wonderful conversation. I, I've been really looking forward to it. Thank you so much for being here, Taylor. Yes, thank you so thank much you. for having me. I've, I've really, really enjoyed this. And, and it's been so great to just really talk with people who are on the same page. And I, I feel like it's been a really, really lovely conversation. And I've really enjoyed it. I've had a great time. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for, yeah, for chatting you, you with were us. like the perfect first guest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for listening. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or stream our episodes directly on Zencaster, which is Zencaster.com slash queer lodgings the Tolkien podcast with hyphens in between all of those words. Please leave us a rating, like, share, and subscribe. You can find us on all your favorite social medias at uh, Facebook slash Queer Lodgings and Twitter for right now at Queer underscore Lodgings. If you would like to get in touch with us or suggest a, an episode idea, you can send us an email at QueerLodgingsPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>